John chapter 14, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to this blessed, fascinating portion of Scripture to which God has brought us as we've gone through this glorious gospel. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. And recall that this is immediately upon the, he's just said, I, don't you know me? I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Yes, let's stand. I'm sorry for the reading of God's word. Thank you, Todd. If you had known me, You would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How do you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You may be seated. These words are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the context, of course, is the, the upper room or the farewell discourse, as it is sometimes called. Perhaps the last two, maybe three hours that the Lord Jesus spends with his disciples before he is betrayed, denied, isolated from them until they meet again, as we find in the Gospels, gathered around the cross. And the striking thing, I think, about this particular passage is that the Lord Jesus has reserved, even in the depths of John's Gospel, he has reserved the deepest of his teaching for the hour of his disciples' greatest crisis. And if ever there was a passage in the Gospels that would lead us to believe that the deeper the teaching we get, the more we will be prepared for the crisis, this would certainly be it. And if you wanted to point to one segment in the New Testament where the mystery of the Trinity is profoundly unraveled, 
It's in this occasion. And it is therefore a passage that has convinced me that the doctrine of the Trinity, or better, the reality of the Trinity, which so many professing Christians regard as the most speculative and impractical of all Christian doctrines, must in fact be the least speculative and the most practical of Christian doctrines. End quote. That was an exact verbatim from Sinclair Ferguson in his sermon titled The Spirit of Christ. Now, my thoughts. I confess that the intensely practical and pastoral nature, nature of last week's sermon, which was titled from verse 1, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, and I pray that you were blessed by that. I was, probably more than anybody else here, but I was. That first verse suddenly dives from a position of incredible pastoral sensitivity by Christ to, to a series of statements, and particularly one statement by Jesus that R.C. Sproul titles perichoresis. If you read the email I sent out, you've encountered this word already. Perichoresis. Peri what? The statement sprawl refers to crystallizes in John 14, verses 10 and 11. Look at it again. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Hmm. Now, may I pause and describe one of the blessings and challenges of plain style expository preaching. Here it is, the pastor-preacher follows where the text leads, Sunday by Sunday. Now, admittedly, sometimes it is where you want to go, but sometimes it is not. And sometimes it is where the flock wants you to go, and sometimes it is not. But the servant of the word of God never uses the text as a springboard for a topic that he's presenting. Expository preaching does not pander to the preacher's appetites or the flock's appetite. It is the spirit of God, not our appetite, who sets the stage for what is preached in a book or epistle. So, so today, it's there in chapter 14, we move from let not your heart be troubled to believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Let me pray. Eternal blessing and praise be yours, our Father. 
Eternal blessing and praise be yours, our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved Savior. Eternal blessing and praise be yours, most holy, comforting, sanctifying spirit. As one voice, we rejoice that thou art one God, but even more we rejoice that as one God, thou art three eternal persons, subsisting as Father, Son, and Spirit. All praise to thee for the eternal community of love that is you, that utterly exceeds all description, our comprehension. For thou art love, as thy holy word tells us. All praise to thee for this blessed abounding grace that flows from thy heart to guilty sinners such as me. Father, to contemplate that you have phileoed us, affectionately loved us, from before the dawn of time tenderly touches us. Thou who art eternally praised by thy seraphim amidst myriads of angels, we humbly come to this thy sacred word, breathed out by thy Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, proclaim the Father's name today to thy glory and our blessing. Amen. My hope today is to provide first explanation of the passage, as Ezra did. That's what is described in Nehemiah. That's what Ezra did. They read the scripture and then gave explanation of the passage, verses 7 through 14. Secondly, to examine the doctrine that Jesus presents in this passage. Perry what? Perichoresis. And the connection of perichoresis with let not your heart be troubled. Because it's Jesus thought there was a connection. And third, application of what Jesus teaches, particularly as it impacts our prayer life based on the promises of God. Verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Well, the implication here is that the disciples have not really known Christ Jesus, and thus they have not known the Father either. Indeed, if we reflect, who of us would claim to fully know Jesus? My own experience going through John, having taught through John 10, 12 times, having preached through John in the prison, but never preached as deeply or learned as much or saw as much or fell as much in love with Jesus as I have with you going through John. Barclay comments that to the ancient world, verse 7 was the most staggering thing Jesus ever said because to the Greeks, God was characteristically the invisible and the Jews strongly affirmed that no man has seen God at any time. But John says all of this changed with Jesus. And as a result of what he has done, his followers really know God, which is a, a revolution in both theology and religious experience and understanding. Well, verses 8 through 9, glance at it on your page again. Hearing Thomas speak, saying, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. 
Hearing Thomas speak is like looking in a mirror. Every charge, in fact, Jesus makes against Thomas and the other disciples could easily be charged of me, of us. Calvin says we, we profess to be earnest in seeking God, and when he presents himself before our eyes, we are blind. <laughs> and why the blindness? Is it not because he did not do it in the manner we expected him to? And why would we expect him to answer exactly in the manner that we had envisioned? If he is God. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Observe in Jesus' words, he who has seen me has seen the Father, the fulfillment of John 1.18, which told us no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained, or exegesis is the Greek word, he has exegeted him. So in the prologue, here's the concept. This word, this logos, is going to exegete God. In chapter 14, verse 9, here's the reality. If you've seen me, if you've listened to my words, if you've listened to my tone of voice, if you've watched me rising early to pray, if you've seen my heart for the wounded, you have seen the Father. Wow. To see Jesus is to see the mystery of divine personality. It's quite a thought. What is the divine personality like? I suspect much more intense than I, much more holy than I, pure than I, joyful than I. To see Jesus is to see the mystery of divine personality. For, for in Jesus we see the Father's heart, we see his character, his love, his affection towards sinners like ourselves. Is this how we think? Or oh, don't answer collectively. Answer for yourself. Is this how you think? Do I measure my perception of God the Father by what I see in God the Son? To fail in this is to repeat the disciples' error. The old and most ill-informed, yes, wrong view of seeing the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament as a God of grace. No, there was grace in the old and there's wrath in the new. At the cross, there's wrath. So to see Jesus is to see the Father, for Jesus said, I have exegeted, I have explained, I have revealed the Father to you. So, dear friend, if you have begun to see Jesus, you're beginning to see the Father as well. And don't you love him, particularly knowing the tender affection he has had for you from before the beginning of the world?
doctrine from the passage. Well, verses 10 and 11. And while we are not there yet, we are on the cusp of Jesus' teaching on the third divine person of the Godhead. That happens in verse 16. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit is introduced into this father-son relationship. And, and so we ourselves come from a framework of Trinitarianism. Thus, what we find Jesus saying here about the relationship between the Father and Son will very shortly also include the relationship they have with the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit has with them. In the words of Leon Morris on verse 10, quote, now comes a statement about the mutual interpenetration of the Father and the Son. Each is in the other. Indeed, so important is this to Jesus that in verse 11, he intensifies the profoundly deep theology saying, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is describing a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, and by extension, the Holy Spirit, verse 16. So the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct, eternal, divine beings, persons, persons. And the three particular terms or concepts which point to these eternal truths are fatherhood, begotten, and proceeding. God the Father is the Father in relation to the Son. God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. God the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But the Father is neither begotten nor does he proceed from. And the Son does not proceed from but is sent by the Father and the Spirit is neither begotten, nor is he called the Father. As R.C. Sproul writes, and I quote, Though we cannot fully conceive of how God can be one and three at the same time, but not in the same sense, the concept of perichoresis helps us avoid Trinitarian errors. Perichoresis is a Greek term that refers to the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Godhead. This is still sprawl. Perichoresis means that the Father is in the Son, is in the Holy Spirit. We can distinguish the divine persons. There's a Father, there's a Son, there's a Holy Spirit, but we cannot pull them apart. They exist in one another the Father dwelling completely in the Son and the Spirit, the Son dwelling completely in the Father and the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwelling completely in the Father and the Son. Now to hopefully help a little bit, this mutual indwelling of perichoresis means two things. First, the three persons of the Trinity are each fully in one another. Second, each person of the Trinity 
is in full possession of the divine essence. To be sure, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But what perichoresis maintains is that you cannot have one person of the Trinity without having the other two. And you cannot have any person of the Trinity without having the fullness of God. The intercommunion of the persons is reciprocal and their operations are inseparable. This is why Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. This is why Thomas can exclaim, my Lord and my God. Because the man standing in front of him resurrected is his God, although he's seen the manifestation of the Son. But the Father, Son, and Spirit are mutually within one another, yet distinct. As Augustine put it, tightly, each are in each, and all in each, and each in all, and all are one. <laughs> in a class, write a 20-page paper unpacking that statement. <laughs> but how can three persons simultaneously share the same undivided essence? Well, the answer is not that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit waltz in step with each other, but that they co-inhere in such a way that the persons are always and forever with and in one another, yet without merging, blending, or confusion. And only by affirming the mutual indwelling of each in each other can we worship our triune God as truly three and truly one and be true to such passages as John 14, 10, and 11. One of the Cappadocian church fathers, Gregory Nazianzen, writing from the 4th century, and this is a passage I've quoted before, but this is a passage that John Calvin in his Institutes said, vastly delights me. Calvin, delighted by this, Gregory writes, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them, Father, Son, and Spirit, than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, my Lord and my God. And my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what, of what I'm thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. And when I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Hmm. Do you see what Gregory did there? 
Gregory moved past the theology and entered into worship, entered into doxology, because all true theology leads to doxology. Now, application of this passage. Jesus' point in turning from the pastorally sensitive nature of let not your heart be troubled to this deep water of verses 10 and 11. Jesus' point was to come to verses 12 through 14. Look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, because of perichoresis disciples, he didn't say that, but that's the point. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will the Father do? No, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is quite an incredible promise by God. A blank check? Well, in some churches, yes, you can name it and claim it, so they teach. I walked by the cell in segregation, there's a young man, probably 20 years of age, sitting in a cell on his bunk. His back in Menard. And he looks at me and has a Cheshire cat grin on his face. I said, how are you, sir? Talked briefly, made inquiry. Religion? Most of these guys were taken to Baptist churches by their grandmas and moms. But in prison, he has become a five percenter, another word for nation of gods and earth. The actual belief is that the man himself, the adherent to that religion, he is God. So knowing that, I said, <clears throat> now if I understand your religion right, sir, you believe you are God. He said, yes. I said, so how's it going? <laughs> and I left. <laughs> I thought the application could be made probably without me doing more. But, but this is an incredible promise by Jesus. And some would say, yes, you can name it and claim it. But in an effort to bring pastoral application, I pray it blesses you as it blessed me. I have turned to the Puritans on their understanding and use of God's promises. The Puritans loved God's promises. One reason for this is that they loved Christ and saw in him all the promises. Edward Reynolds, 1642, Jesus Christ is the sum, fountain, seal, treasury of all the promises. And again he wrote, quote, Promises are the rays and beams of Christ, the Son of Righteousness, in whom they are all founded and established. Samuel Rutherford, early 1600s, stated in his catechism, 
The new covenant is a mass of promises laying the weight of our salvation upon us stronger than we are, to wit, upon Christ. Our faith grippeth promises and maketh us to go out of ourselves, in and out of pasture, listening for the Master's voice, to Christ as being familiar with Christ. William Spurstow, the early 1600s, wrote, The promises are instrumental in the coming of Christ and the soul together. Catch that. They are the warrant by which faith is emboldened to come to him and take hold of him. But the union which faith makes is not between a believer and the promise. Oh no, the union is between the believer and Christ. He also wrote, the promises are a rich mine of spiritual heavenly treasures, a garden of the most precious flowers and medicinal herbs. They are as the pool of Bethsaida for all diseases, for all sorts of persons, and at all times. Well, from the depths of Scripture, the Puritans plumbed the following biblical truths. The first we'll cover, the second perhaps very briefly. We won't touch after that today. But children of God must believe God's promises. Puritan Andrew Gray wrote, quote, The unspeakable gain that flows to a Christian through the promises in, is enjoyed through the act of believing them. For in believing the promises, the soul rises unto a likeness and conformity to Christ in holiness, wisdom, and righteousness. Believing, he said, helps a Christian distance himself from the world and live more like a pilgrim on earth. Hebrews 11 tells us the patriarchs died in faith, not having received the thing promised, but acknowledging the truth of them because the things promised were to be found not on earth but in God. Puritan Gray wrote, Faith makes our thoughts to ascend, and misbelief makes our thoughts descend in relation to the mercies of heaven. Now listen to this, because this is some of the best pastoral counsel that I could give or have given. This statement by Puritan Lay Knowing the great harvest that comes by believing the promises, the devil feels compelled to strike at our faith in the promises. Not so much at our faith in the truth of them as at the faith by which we apply those promises to ourselves. See, we can go out of here believing in the truth of the promises, but not be actively applying themselves to us at all, much less praying the promises. So our problem is not so much a lack of faith, but a failure to truly apply the promises. For example, we read the scriptures, come across a particular promise that directly speaks to our situation, and we say amen in our hearts, but quickly close our mind as we close our Bible and turn back to other things. And then when the fulfillment of that promise does not happen, 
we go back to our Bible looking for another promise, hoping to find one that will work. But the problem is not the promise, but our failure to lean and depend on it in meditation so as to confer with it, chew on it, until we feel, as Grace said, the sweetness of it in our mouth. Spurgeon said, this is worth everything this morning, one promise thoroughly ruminated and meditated upon is like a morsel of meat well chewed and digested which distributes more nourishment and strength to the body than great quantities taken down whole. As a Presbyterian, I can show myself capable of taking great quantities down whole, but am I ruminating, meditating, chewing on particular promises as regards the, the hope that we have at the loss of our son? as regards his promise to glorify himself through the church. Puritan Pure Spursto, in his book, The Wells of Salvation, how lost we are when we remain ignorant of the divine promises. We believe we have recourse to them as the children of God, but we fail to remind ourselves of them. We neglect to keep them on hand as stones in the pouch, as it were. And thus, when a Goliath approaches, we feel empty-handed and suffer the loss of available comfort and peace that God would have given us if we'd been in the Scripture, pondering, meditating. Finally, the Lord has set a date and time for the fruition of his promises, but that is... His timing, not ours. And that's true for us as a church, as well as homes and individuals. We must look to him as the all-wise God and wait on him with submission and contentment. For his timing is perfect. He is never late, but is always on time. A good heart, this Puritan said, Though it will not let God wait long for its obedience, yet it will wait as long as God sees good for his promises. Saying only with David, Remember the word unto thy servant, upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Let us then who believe the promises of God, like Jesus spoke here in John 14, 13 and 14, go on to apply them to ourselves through serious meditation on them and habitual recourse to them. And let us wait patiently for their fulfillment, thereby preparing ourselves to take possession of and enjoy the full sweetness of them when, in the Lord's wiser timing and determinations, they are fulfilled unto us. John 14, 13, and 14 will close. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
Christ describes the mutual indwelling between himself and the Father and makes initial application to our prayers and a promise of God the Son that Christ himself will answer our prayer. An incredible promise by God our Savior, but not a blank check. How am I with regard to the promises of God? Do I have a favorite five? Ten that I'm currently meditating on, journaling? Am I applying them? We'll look at this more next week as an intro probably, but am I praying them? Let me pray. Father, we have come from this incredible touch from the Son to us. Let not your hearts be troubled to this deep water of the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. Father, help us to see that it is because of that mutual indwelling that the disciples could trust Jesus, that if they prayed to him, he'd answer them just as the Father would. And that whatever Jesus has manifested has been the Father as well. Help us to plumb the depths of this gospel and so come in love with you for the abounding grace you have shown us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.